we stopped by this big pile of bricks at the, at the edge of the field. Big pile of bricks and a lot of fresh raspberries. So we're picking raspberries and other guys and said, Tony, I said, what, 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 what's this old brick building? Because everything has history there. Yeah. And he said, well, this was the old palace, uh, palace of Henry VIII. We were hawking on the same grounds that Henry VIII hawked on. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, brought to you in part by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on Marshall products, including their awesome GPS system, head to marshallradio.com and also the Falconry Fund. And the Falconry Fund is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and protecting the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. For more information on the Falconry Fund, including different projects they've got going on, as well as to donate, head to falconryfund.org. And this episode is the second to last episode of the New Mexico Falconers Association podcast series that we did. And it didn't take me very long at all after getting a chance to sit down and meet Tom in person for the first time. It didn't take me very much time at all to realize that this is a man of just almost an immeasurable amount of, of experiences and not only experiences, but a variety of experiences. I haven't met very many people that probably have had as many different experiences as, as he's had throughout his life doing all kinds of different things and getting a chance to, to travel around the world and do them it was really neat and an absolute pleasure to get to sit down and do another follow-up episode with him in person to get a lot more of these different stories down and just to discuss some of the different aspects of the different projects that he's gotten a chance to work on throughout his life and all these different parts of the world and and just like I said just talk to him about you know just the, his experiences and all the different things that he's gotten to do so it was a like I said an absolute pleasure and I'm really glad that I, I got the opportunity to get a lot of these recorded for you all and I'm sure that you will enjoy them and I wish I would have had several more hours to get them all but hopefully we'll get a chance to do that again in the future but in the meantime i hope you enjoy the ones that i did get recorded for you all and i hope you enjoy them as much as i enjoyed recording them so without further ado here is tom smiley here we go i guess i should start off by saying you know thank you for um supplying the uh, the man cave space here to go ahead and let us do these series of recordings today um, and it's nice to officially meet you in person oh. for the first time oh thank you yeah thank as you. i say it's been a it's been a minute a hot minute actually what two year two almost three years since uh you did the the first episode which was well, one of the first in, in the series, actually. Yes, and we did it up at the archives at the in Boise at the Paragon Fund, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, you mm-hmm. and Israel and, uh, and Zane, I think. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, so, well, good times. It's It's been a minute. What have you been up to since then? <laughs> uh, still flying birds and uh, and uh, just breeding birds, and and I, I write some magazine articles for magazines, and and do my bird shows, and and uh, I've been retired now officially as long as I work for the federal government. So hmm. <laughs> that's a milestone uh, for wow. me, bucket list. I wanted to be sure to get my money's worth. <laughs> Being Scott, you know, oh, we got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Now, congratulations on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, as far as, uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess if there's a goal to have, that would that would definitely be one of them for mm-hmm. sure. And uh, you know, I I uh, fantasize about that daily. <laughs> <laughs> Most people do. I, I I did for a long time. I was glad I retired when I was uh, 58 years old on an early government buyout, and it was changed administration. So I was assistant regional director, and I just decided to go put peregrines back in the wild, and that's what we did. 
Hmm. We work for the Peregrine Fund, my wife and I and daughter, and put Peregrines back out like at uh, up near Pinedale, Wyoming, and uh, and uh, Mount Rainier, Washington. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Was, Pinedale's a neat little town. I've been, been yeah. through there a couple times since I've, you know, as like we were talking before, being up in Wyoming in the past couple months, I went up there for the first couple times, and mm-hmm. it's a neat little town. It's got yes, a, it is. Yeah, it's a neat vibe. What all did you do up there whenever you, you were doing all the, the Peregrine stuff? Well, uh, what we did is we were at a little town. Uh, as you go past Pinedale, you take a right and go to Cora. Okay. And there's a road up there, a beautiful lake up there and stuff. And we were at this <clears throat> ranch up there where we were releasing Peregrines uh, from the Peregrine Fund back into the wild. We had a hack site. And we built a tower up there. And then... Uh, uh, they we brought us about four or five I forgot now, highest peregrines. We put them in the box, and then um, after a while, after they got fully feathered, then we just fed them remotely, and uh, they converted back into wild peregrines. But we did that for about six weeks, and we uh, lived in our trailer, our daughter and I and myself, and that was the uh, second hack site. It was important for me to do the hack sites because. I gave back when we started the Peregrine Fund back at Cornell at the Laboratory of Ornithology. Uh, uh, Tom Cade and Jim Weaver were getting it set up. And New Mexico was one of the few places where we still had a population of peregrines I knew of, of five iris. And in two years, I uh, took back to uh, Jim and Tom uh, uh, six IS peregrines. And uh, that was some of the seed birds to start the Peregrine Fund. And uh, in 40 years, we released something like 4,000 birds back to the wild. Okay. Yeah, and those were from the... So I wanted to follow that, the complete wheel around uh, where we were at. Peregrines were almost non-existent. And uh, what, there was less than 100 pair left. Wow. And uh, then to put these babies back from the ones I took from the wild genetically. And it was, kind of, it was a, one of those bucket list things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, everybody's got their own, I don't know, whatever, like rewarding, you know, yeah. things that they want to pursue. And I mean, I guess if there's a, a cause that you want to pursue, you know, making sure a particular animal not going extinct would be, a, <laughs> yes. you know, be one of them. So yeah, to me, the peregrine skies would be empty without them. Yeah. And uh, that's why I retired early uh, because uh, I want to be sure to do the hack site and get the peregrines back out. And so we did it for two years in a row, my daughter and wife and I, before we went to Europe and lived for a while in Scotland and Ireland, England. Nice. Wow. Yeah, well, not Ireland, excuse me, England. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Is there, um, I mean, was there ever really, you know, since you've had experience living here in the States, obviously, and uh, over in Europe, did they ever face any similar issues with any of the species that they had over there? I mean, the, well, the peregrine was uh, threatened out there too. You know, yeah, same. And there are a lot of iris that are historical for hundreds of years were no longer active, mm-hmm. and stuff. The peasants, uh, in particular, the as I recall, the Finland peregrine was in a lot of trouble, and, and stuff. So yeah, they had the same. Well, I mean, DDT or DDE, a derivative of that. A breakdown. It was found in the eggshells of the emperor penguins. I mean, we were using 10 pounds of DDD per acre on farmland. Huh. In New Mexico, the reason why we had the peregrines here, not only did I know where they were because I'd been kind of studying them and flying them over the years, uh, was the fact that we didn't have much agriculture. So the exposure to the DDT and DDE was minimal. Yeah. But Jim Anderson's study, for example, found that our not on peregrines were eating about 80% swaths and swills swill, and, and uh, swifts. Yeah. That was their main diet, which would be a highly insectivorous bird. That makes and, sense. Yeah. yeah. But we had, a, we had a, about 100 birds left. Of course, the tundra peregrine, the Arctic peregrine, was okay. In fact, I went up to Greenland and we... we uh, took blood samples and stuff out of iris and eggshell samples and stuff in Greenland and banded birds up there. How does a person get into those kind of pro? I mean, 
there's definitely plenty of other people that have done these either government grants or programs or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, however, whatever method it is. But I mean, how did you fall into all that? I re- you know, I really don't know in a lot of respects. Uh, I had some good friends, and it just kind of worked out. And actually for the uh, Green Folk operation, uh, Bill Maddox called me and uh, asked if I'd go to Greenland with him because they knew I knew falcons and I knew how to trap, and I was doing cliffs at the time. In fact, that picture right behind you is of uh, Sanderstrom, near Sanderstrom. It's uh, at Fjord there. The peregrines are nesting. And there's no trees on top of that cliff, so we had to tie the rope to the uh, strut of the helicopter. And then I took that picture, and she was screaming at us as we were doing her babies there. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> and then I, then I spent 12-year uh, project every fall trapping uh, peregrines on the dry tortugas halfway between Cuba and Key West. And we did that for my wife and I, and, and uh, kids did it for 12 years. I'd be out there for... Th- Two to three weeks, and the peregrine was still endangered at that time, and we were taking samples and stuff and doing color marking and stuff. And some years, I'd in a couple weeks, I'd catch 100 peregrines or so. Then other years, we'd only catch two, depending on the weather patterns. Hmm. But it was really neat because the guys up the coast, like Dr. Ward, Scotty Ward, and, and those guys, Mike Yates, and those guys were banning birds on, on the uh, Assateague Island. And they'd have these markers, and then I, I'd see them sitting at the the island we were on was 14 acres in the middle of a coral reef, yeah. and there was like a few casuarine salt cedars, so they'd come in there to roost and stuff, and uh, so we'd uh, they'd have them color marked, and I got pictures of them, and some a couple of them I re caught, and we had plastic bands on there, so we'd track these birds where they're going. A bird I banded up in Greenland was was. Uh, Racine in uh, Santa Fe, Argentina, south of Buenos Aires. So it gives us a whole data of information and also the pesticide residue that was in the birds because they're circumpolar. So we had a lot of interesting research going on and catching peregrines out there, uh, swimming trunks, and <laughs> <laughs> you know. And uh, I had uh, dogazas with uh, starlings and stuff. and. And I used to teach scuba diving and stuff, so I'd go get lobsters for dinner, and it was tough. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you probably had the tiki bar set up just right on the, the end there also, so you could just go and get you a drink and a nice, you know, mm-hmm. get you a pina colada or whatever and just kind of wait out and just... Well, just <laughs> my wife and I and my son and daughter, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was all to ourselves, you know, and, and that, it was a light station, the Coast Guard would come in once in a while and check and be sure everything's working all right. Yeah. And how, how long did you say you were out there at a time? 12 years, 12, 12 different falls. Okay. And, and, and one of them, we came out during a hurricane. Oh. And that, that was real exciting. There's yeah, a I whole bet. story I could tell about that because, uh, oh, man, that was Tell it. Quite Go ahead. A, well, <clears throat> Bill Maddox, Dr. Maddox, was going to replace us, and we'd already spent our three weeks out there. And this hurricane came off the coast of the Yucatan and coming across there. And all of a sudden, it was kind of interesting because the shrimp boats would get on the leeward side of the island during the day because they shrimpers go at night. That's when the shrimp come up out of the Gulf Stream. So they'd be there and, and they could sleep and stuff on the leeward side of the island, get away from the wave action. So all of a sudden, the next day, we got up and they were all gone. And there are usually about six or eight of them anchored there for fishing in the Gulf Stream there. And uh, what the hell's going on? So I got all the Coast Guard, and uh, they said, there's a, there's a hurricane coming. And those guys were just ready to pull out. Well, we had partied the night before with them. I mean, I'd give them a case of beer in their company boats, <laughs> and they'd give us a five-gallon bucket of fresh shrimp. I mean, it was rough. Wow. <laughs> and so we were, they, we had a big party out there that night with the Coast Guard guys and that. And so they overslept and stuff. <laughs> so my wife, being the talkative gal that she is, she turned those guys around. They came back and picked us up. And I destroyed the nets as best I could and let the pigeons and starlings go. And, and uh, we, we started coming out. And what normally took about a three-and-a-half to four-hour trip from Key West out, it took us 14 hours to get back. 
Jeez. And this was an old shrimp boat. And uh, the waves were so bad that the, the, the struts that they used to put the nets out from the side of the shrimp boats, we used those so we wouldn't tip over. And it was an old boat, and he, the, the throttle we held in with a piece of wedged wood going over these 30-foot waves of the Gulf Stream. <laughs> and the crew, he had three other guys there. They were all sick. So I wound up running the, the boat. <laughs> and uh, we, t we had taken a kid out uh, with us, one of Sherry's family members, never seen the ocean before from Minnesota. <laughs> and he's sick. Everybody's throwing uh. up. And uh, the cap's down to run the bilge pump, and I'm leading this thing. It's like something out of a Hemingway movie or something. And boom, splash, and the deck had come way up, and it was dark, you know. And Bill met us with a car at the end at the Key Weston, but it was pretty exciting. So Bill never, Bill and Joan never got out there to trap that year. Man. But uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Now. <laughs> yeah, now, in retrospect, right? But, would have been so fun if they wouldn't have overslept and you wouldn't have had that, well, yeah. that ride back to... <laughs> she turned those... My wife can turn... She can literally sell refrigerators to Eskimos. She she <laughs> talked those guys into coming, and they set a dinghy out, and we jumped in the boat and took off from the reef. Jeez. Well, and, uh, so, I mean, you, you said all those subsequent falls, but each fall, I mean, how long were you, were you and your family just out there? Trying well, to catch well, a couple birds? of times I went by myself the first year or so trapping, uh, uh, with Bill Harry, a, a falconer from back East. And, uh, we, I usually get there middle of September until sometime almost the middle of October. Right, Cause month, I have my birthday out there most times. Okay. <clears throat> hmm. That's, uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess there's worse ways to spend, you know, September and October. Oh, geez. Uh, it's <laughs> a beautiful. The water's usually really good, and uh, the clarity is over 100 feet. And there's, I found a couple of cannons from Spanish Galleon, the Park Service, who has Fort Jefferson, which is about six miles away from us, because we're the last on the Dry Tortuga Islands. And so I found some cannon form they'd never seen, and, and uh, I got some spikes from old uh, shipwrecks and stuff. There was over 200 shipwrecks around there. And then the, the uh, treasure hunter, Mel Fisher, was just off there. And that's where he found, what, $300 million worth of gold and stuff there. So there's a lot of history there. And Fort Jefferson was a, civil, uh, was a fort, but it remained during the Civil War as a uh, Union fort. And so that's where they put the prisoners. Uh, for the Confederacy, and uh, they put them there, and they had a whole big contingent of, of those guys there. And then they had a, a, a yellow fever outbreak, and Dr. Mudd, who was a doctor that treated Booth, was in a cell there. And he helped all the, the guards and everybody get past the yellow fever. And, and then he was, uh, I think it was President Cleveland Gore, Cleveland, uh, commuted his sentence off that island. And then the battleship Maine parked there before it went to Havana and got sunk. And uh, there's a, I found a, a burial site on my little island. It was called Loggerhead Key. And uh, there was a, a chap buried there. He died swimming while the boat was anchored. The, sh the ship was anchored there at Fort Jefferson. It was a really preserved area. And uh, no, no wind or anything get to it, but he drowned out there, and he was buried at the light station out there. And I checked on his history. I went back through stuff with the Carnegie Institute because they had the foremost marine research station on that island clear back in the 1900s. In fact, the first heart transplant was done on a shark there, but there's only ruins. It burned down. They had to close it down because of the German subs. Hmm. And, and, and so they couldn't get stuff out there, and then uh, the buildings burned down. So we just had the remains. So, but so I found this, and sure enough, this guy, uh, interestingly enough, he was born on a light station in Nova Scotia, and he was buried in a light station in the Dry Tortugas. Well, there's a lot of stories I could go on for. There's, there's something. Uh, I guess there's something to be said for consistency. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean. It sounds to me also like you probably might have uh, 
maybe been looking, you know, for the wrong thing. Instead of trying to trap all these or, you know, study all these birds, you should have been looking for a sunken treasure just off the coast there. Yeah, it could have <laughs> very likely could have been. You know, Mel Fisher did real good. Of course, his son dry, died out there diving for, wow. for gold and yeah. stuff. But anyway, and Key West is, was nothing like it is now. I mean, it was a funky little town and there wasn't any fast food restaurants or great restaurants, but it, I went back there when our daughter graduated from college about 12 years ago. That was her gift. She wanted to go to the Tortugas and see them, and, and uh, we couldn't even find our way around Key West. I mean, it was all... So different. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, so w whenever you were in Europe doing a lot of your um, you know projects over there, I mean, was it similar type of stuff to what you were doing in, in those islands or was it no no it was uh, completely different uh, I was doing uh, speaking engagements okay uh, about how we recovered the peregrine in North America basically mm -hmm. and also I did some talks on the research up in the Arctic uh, and it wasn't uh, I wasn't doing your for the Europeans I wasn't doing research per se but I met with the researchers, and also we were in Germany. We lived there for a while, and I hawked with the Germans and eagle hawked and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we were just, uh, we were between houses. We sold our house in Albuquerque, and I hadn't started building this one over here. We're about 50 miles east, 40, 50 miles east. So we took that break time and went over there, and I, I got Scottish ancestries, and and stuff, and we did a lot. I like history a lot, so we went to battle where Battle of Kolhagen was, and all that other stuff. So yeah, there's a and hunt red grouse. You know, yeah, we'd hunt red grouse and drink it at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of history there. A lot of, I mean, so I've been to Eastern Europe now, two or well, a few different times, uh -huh. and each time it's just, I mean, you could go over there a hundred times and still not get you know or absorb all, all of that history it's oh, nuts yeah but uh so i mean what were your some of your experiences like with um you know with hawking over there then when you were well it was really interesting uh, i'd known jeffrey pollard for a long time and, and tony crosswell who was um became president of the british club and then president of the european falconers deal and tony had a he came over here and stayed for a while on some special project and he t stayed at our place. We gave him our place to stay at. And we went, I think we went to Hackside or something. <clears throat> so Tony had a spare house next to his cottage in, in Norwich, outside of Norwich in Longstraten. And uh, and so I got, you know, real hawking, you know. So I went up north. This was the second time. I went up twice to Scotland with Jeffrey Pollard hawking, the first time by myself. Then the second time, uh, Sherry gave me a, a ticket to fly to see Jeffrey and all that. We had a good time there with Roger Upton and some of those guys, you know. And then uh, the second time I was up there, we stayed next to Tony's and then we went up to, we were outside of Wick in Caithness, Scotland. And uh, it was interesting, Tony was really into partridge hawking, which I liked better than the grouse hawking. And uh, he had a beautiful Tearsel peregrine and uh, that he flew called Nelson after the British Admiral. And so we're out there flying these fields and the British gave me a goshawk to hunt with and a, and a peregrine, the club did, which was real generous of him while I was there. And, and we were flying partridge and Tony's a gourmet cook and we stopped by this big pile of bricks at the, at the edge of the field, big pile of bricks and a lot of fresh raspberries. So we're picking raspberry, and those guys said, "Tony, I says, what, 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 what's this old brick building? Because everything has history there." You know? And he said, "Well, this was the old castle, uh, palace of Henry VIII. We were hawking on the same grounds that Henry VIII hawked on." Hmm. Wow! You know, it give you a depth of falconry. You know that holy cow, old Henry was out here doing beating the bush just like we were. And uh, I thought that was pretty incredible. And the hawking, some of the hawking was great. Uh, the, being, uh, I was a guest of the German Dalschenfalkner, 
and uh, watch them work their goshawks was uh, really something. But it was like going to a formal banquet here in New in New Mexico. I mean, they all had their, you know, their their forest green and their hats and their ties and stuff. And I'm out there in a pair of Carhartts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and the uh, and it was a very formal, you know, at the end of the night, they had all the rabbits and the pheasants and everything all laid out, you know, and then they had the horn and then they had the, the torches and everything. I was just waiting for Goring to come out. And <laughs> it was it kind of scary, you know. But uh, there, you know, and I don't know that, that ferret hunting, I've never been a popular of it. You know, they, they got these beautiful handmade boxes and stuff. And they put the ferret out there, and the and the countryside's like it's not like us with brush and all that. It's grass and everything. Mm. And they run the ferret down. The ferret runs out the hole. The goshawk catches it. And I, I didn't find that particularly challenging, you know. It uh, and they hawked all day because they always went for their limit. Mm. You know, they're real organized. Yeah. And they just hawked for their <laughs> limit, and only certain people could come to the meet. You had to be invited to bring a bird there, and you know we had Czar and some of those big German falconers that did a lot of research and stuff. And uh, it was interesting, and people certainly were nice and friendly. But I didn't like that part of the hawking. Partridge uh, uh, hawking red sage grouse with with some of those guys uh, was really spectacular, really nice, put together. It's expensive. I mean, you know, that's everything's owned. You know, and uh, Pollard had 30,000 acres he hawked on, and we had some of the other guys coming up. And then, uh, you know, it was, you know, people wore ties, <laughs> Wellingtons and all that, you know. And, <laughs> but uh, the grouse hawking was, the dogs were good. But the, the, uh, the red grouse bailed out a lot of times that I, when I was watching anyway, and I was there two different trips. It was hard to sometimes to keep them out of the, uh, not just the heather, but uh, all these big piles of ferns. I forgot what they called it. And the grouse would go into that, and you're pretty well done hmm. compared to the American. But, but it was neat because so many of the books I'd read by Hawkins Fisher and all these guys to be out there in those same fields and, and stuff. And I had a good time goshawking. It was just... I caught a lot of stuff with the goshawk bojangles they gave me, and I'd catch all kinds of things. And uh, so I had a good time watching them and being a part of it. But, but the Welsh Club had me speaking at their banquet and stuff, and really nice. Those guys are tough guys. So it's like going to a from the English. It was like going to a motorcycle gang. <laughs> Two guys down there got in a fight. You know? <laughs> I presented the recovery of the peregrine falcon and what we did to do that. And afterwards, uh, some questions came up, of course. And then this guy stands up and, he, you know, they drink a lot. And uh, he was shit-faced and sort of, and he's, he was yelling at me, why didn't you have something on the kestrels? Kestrels are the neatest part of you. And I, I said, well, it was just on peregrines. I, I said, you know, we didn't do anything on hair socks or anything. You know, he was just giving me our president of the club tells the guy to shut up <laughs> and he says hey more i'll kick you out of here and and then two other guys went back and got him and i mean it was oh, i felt like i was you know in one of the bars here in the old days in new mexico <laughs> jeez i oh, wow fun man that <laughs> but those welsh guys and they gave me a beautiful welsh hawking tie for a remembrance and we we hunted around uh uh, what was it, the uh, nuclear power plant. And boy, the <laughs> rabbits were thick around there, and I told them, I said, do they glow at night, too? Can you hawk them? <laughs> but, uh, but they use the ferrets and stuff. Yeah, and that's it's, cool. It's just, everything's much more rigid, you know, in comparison to how we do it. Well, that's a lot to process, especially, like, you know, you mentioned the whole ferret thing, too. You know, it's like, you know, it's obviously illegal in the majority of parts of, of our country. But, yeah. But you do see just these guys that 
just have these huge, huge amounts of, of game that they've gotten. Is there anything special they had to do to get the ferrets going, or was it just natural for them, or did they yeah, do they, any extra they didn't training do special with the ferrets. Yeah. Um, I, I learned that I tried it a little bit. I didn't like it. I had a couple of ferrets here in New Mexico and stuff, and um, I just didn't, I didn't think it was very sporting. Mm. I mean, I mean, if you want to kill things, get a gun. Yeah. Falconry is not, unless you lived in the Renaissance period where it was your dinner. But otherwise, it's, it's just to see what the hawk can do and the quarry can do. And mm. Boy, I, lo- I respect the quarry as much as I do the hawk. I mean, when I see a rabbit, the goss hawk's up two or three times trying to catch it, and the rabbit's doing backflips and everything else to stay <laughs> away, yeah. and he gets away. I think that's some of my best flights. And I say, okay, go get a, go make some babies. You're a good one. Mm. And uh, but so often people kind of zone in on catching numbers, and uh, I I, th- I don't I don't see the need in that. I early on it was to catch anything. I didn't care the bird was five feet off the ground, and the quarry only had three legs. Uh-huh. It was <laughs> you know it was a catch, but then you, you need to evolve into the higher part of it. Yeah. You know, no, I understand. Yeah, I you said it's things are. I mean, I've always heard that things are so different over there. And after recent conversations with you know some other guys, you know, it's um, I you know I I hope I get a chance to see it in person mm-hmm. at some point, just to see because I mean people can describe differences to you, but mm-hmm. it does you you don't ever really process anything until you actually see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess it's it's good that you've had the opportunities to do these speaking engagements and other stuff so you had the, you know, been afforded the chance to actually see these things for yourself. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, was there any was there a particular experience in any of those travels that still in your mind just kind of sticks out as like, a, you know, uh, more than the rest? Or was there anything that left a, a lasting impression on you as far as what you saw in, in regards to hawking and, or doing anything over in well, other places? Yeah, Tony Crosswell, uh, to see uh, to see him fly the Tirsal Peregrines on Partridge was really the most memorable thing about it. Uh, the, the red grouse was fine, and Roger's son, Andy uh, Upton, uh, some great flights. Uh, the ones at Pollard, you know, you can go there one season, the birds do great. You go there the next season, those same birds aren't doing as good. It depends on how long they've been hawking and, and stuff like that. But <clears throat> I, I, I think it really hammered into me to read this stuff by, uh, by Fisher and these guys and Mitchell to be there where those guys were talking about it, even going back to Shakespeare's terminology and everything with Faulkner. It, uh, it had a lot. I, I think that's one of the things that concerns me about the young Faulkners with all the electronics. You know, we had to go get the books and find them and read them and, and everything else, and everything was done by snail mail, you know. You saved your money to make a long-distance phone call to another Faulkner. And I'm not bragging about those times, but it did bring you in contact with the history of falconry mm-hmm. and uh, and the depth of it. And, uh, you know, I strongly believe, you know, uh, in, in the way that, you know, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And I think in falconry, we need to have this, especially this electronic generation of falconers, need to go back and, and read some of the old books and, and stuff, even if it's on the Internet, and see what it is because falconry is still the same. You got a piece of meat and the bird comes back. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not that complicated in a lot of ways. But we've been able to do things like with GPS and stuff. I mean, I fly birds that I would never think of flying that loose, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like I say, these are young falconers want to show us what they got. Take off the slumage and use bells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want well, to be humble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm in, and, you know, the, the two long wings that I've tried flying, you know, I instantly, and it, I, I think it's fine as long as you have that appreciation though. Like uh-huh. I, my, the first time I tried flying a long wing, a bigger long wing, which uh-huh. was an ice prairie that I, that I had a, a couple years ago. Uh-huh. I, the, from the first time I free flew that bird, the first thought I had was, I don't know how all these older dudes 
<laughs> didn't have, didn't where it had had the guts to fly these birds <laughs> without oh. this stuff, you know, without anything, you know. I mean, I would just, I was just like, there's no way that I, I, I would be a nervous wreck flying yeah. a long wing without without GPS. And, well, we just didn't uh, know any better at the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, there's a lot of lot more birds that were lost than I'm sure. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> I, I'll never forget one of the Alamosa meets. You know, and the peregrine was still protected and stuff, and. It, Somebody would breed one or one there, and it'd be a blue peregrine. And hardly any of us, because always we went out the beach and got fresh peregrines. And and we never saw, basically, an adult blue peregrine. And I remember there, one was there in the in the uh, weathering yard in Alamosa, and it must have been 10 or 12 guys standing around just looking at the, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Because you know? <laughs> most of us were flying prairie falcons and stuff at that at that time you know but uh to see a blue peregrine was because you lose them and you just go hopefully get another one yeah you know but it it was pretty exciting and you didn't do this kind of flying like shingren and these guys do now Mm -hmm. or even myself you know where you just put the bird up and you look at your phone and see where if it's above you Mm -hmm. you know and in telemetry it was well is the sound close because <laughs> you know, like I showed you with my Shaheen, he, he was up last year at 5,200 feet. Well, I mean, it's totally impractical. Yeah. But it's just kind of cool to think of that bird a mile up Yeah. and uh, and have it come to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I have to ask, I mean, just being, you know, 100% honest, if which generation would you think you would have rather grown up in though? Would you rather have had that technology to start off with? Or, I mean, it's, like I said, it's great to have the appreciation and, you know, that nostalgia or that, you know, seeing that, that progression, you know, leading up to what we have now, but would you have rather grown up without it or grown up with it? Or, you know, like having that, GPS available to you, like from whenever you first started flying long wings, would you have rather had that if it was available? Well, I suppose if it was available, I'd done it. But <laughs> I think the sweet spot is when, uh, like uh, Louis Luxhanger come out with uh, his electronic transmitters, uh, you know, LNL electronics. That was mm-hmm. a, kind of the first ones before. All the, just having that simple tracking system mm-hmm. without the GPS and knowing the speeds and all that stuff. That was the, the sweet spot because we still had a lot of game and you could fly your bird much looser than you. In the old days, I mean, if you had your peregrine up two, 300 feet over a duck pond, that was good. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. sure that probably seemed like a thousand feet back back. Yeah, I did. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like you're catching fish, how big they were. You know, all my bird was 500 feet. Well, GPS made a lot of us realize that we weren't flying as high as we thought. <laughs> And That's it was hilarious. good to see that, but but uh, I think the sweet spot in Falconry was when we just got just basic telemetry and we could start relaxing, you know, more. And I mean, I think nothing of my bird, one of the peregrine or the Cheyenne just just takes off and goes three or four miles out of sight, you know. And I just, even with telemetry before we had GPS, you know, and they're just waiting and you'd hear the beep, 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 beep. Mm-hmm. They're coming back, you know, it's coming back. In the old days, you just sit there and pray. And the way we got the birds back, if you lost a bird without all this electronic stuff, uh, was you went back to the field where you lost it. Because usually the birds, a lot of times, came back to where you lost them, even if it was the next day or two later. Mm-hmm. So you'd go out there and park, and you'd be throwing a pigeon up and down, just, you know. Yeah, well, and, you know, being taught, I think being taught that kind of stuff, along with, you know, looking for, the other signs, like, you know, a bunch of other birds going ballistic somewhere close crows by, crows, stuff, yeah. you know, and a bunch of other, you know, uh, just a, a bunch of other little indicators that can tell you that, you know, a bird of prey might be around there. So you at least know, at least have an option of a, of a the next place to look or mm-hmm. whatever the case might be. I mean, I, I completely agree that those things, even with all the modern technology, are nice to know because... You never know when those things are going to fail, yeah. and you know sometimes you can get get lucky still, and and luck back into finding that that bird that you lost or whatever the case might be. Yeah, but, you know but. it saves a lot of birds, I think. Yeah, because yeah, we lost a lot of birds back in the day, 
And, uh, of course, an iceberg wouldn't have much of a chance unless you really got going with it. Mm-hmm. But we flew a lot of passage peregrines and stuff in those days. Yeah. You know, I'd go down and trap with Colonel Meredith on South Paraday Island and caught some birds, but it was nothing to come back with four or five peregrines, and you'd have none by the next spring. <laughs> well, I mean, that's... And we didn't know. I started falconry in 1958. There was nobody in the state of New Mexico that flew falcons. Mm-hmm. There was one book in the university library. I was at the university at the time, and that was Emperor Frederick. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. And until I got a hold of Webster out of an old uh, Falconry Club of America uh, booklet, and I don't remember who I got it from, and I went up to Webby's up there in, in uh, Castle Rock. And that's when I started seeing the real falconry or, or close to it. Webby wasn't that that great with the high-flying birds and stuff, particularly at that time. But he did have those big white gear falcons and, and stuff, and he knew a hell of a lot more than I did and Frank Beebe and stuff. But nobody in New Mexico at the time when I started. Uh, and, you know, it's just, you just learn the hard way. You learn how to make justice. You learn how to do this and that. The hoods I got, I got from over in England sent to me. And uh, and those, they weren't great hoods. I mean, I wouldn't use them on my bir- birds now. You can see one of them in a glass container over there. Uh, but they were, uh, <laughs> that's the way you, that's the way you did it. You made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And you lost a lot of birds. And we didn't have our Maya justice. We had regular justice. Yeah. Uh, you know, and things have improved tremendously. And there was no, um, nothing for f- take care of frowns so you didn't mm-hmm. want to feed pigeons because you kill your bird and stuff so mm-hmm. it was it was a different ball game in those 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 days but you learned you learned how to make justice you learned how to make leashes you learned how to make blocks you learned how to what to feed and what not to feed and and all this stuff and then we communicate a lot with letters i gave a several boxes full of letters to the archives of communications I had with German falconers and English and all all around America over the years that we corresponded. And it's uh <laughs> it's kinda hard to imagine now what it would be like to sitting there waiting on a letter back for weeks at a time. Yeah. I can, <laughs> I mean now you just send an email and you know you can get a you know a response back in minutes, you know, it's yeah. like it's yeah. Well, even making a phone call, you know, it costs you $10 or $11, $12 to make a call somebody here in the United States, you Mm -hmm. know. Right. You had to save your money. And, of course, I wasn't making much money then at the time either. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a tough deal, to say the least. Yeah, no, I I can imagine. And, you know, I mean, you kind of segued into it a little bit automatically. But, I mean, (sighs) expound a little bit on, you know, I mean, was there any extra, I mean, aside from the obvious things, I mean, what, what were some of the, the hurdles that, that you kind of had to face being one of the first Falconers in this state mm-hmm. and, you know, starting, you know, it may, did, you know, being involved with starting a club or, or, um, you know, having to deal with, you know, some of the things that came into existence after you got into it several years later. Well, let me, let me start the <laughs> I feel like uh, an old timer. Let me start at the beginning. Back in, <laughs> in 1958, it was I. I was here at the University of New Mexico, on athletic scholarship of wrestling and football, and I was as a junior. I was playing across. No, I was a sophomore. Junior, I guess, playing across from uh, an all-American tackle from Air Force Academy. That's the year they went to the Cotton Bowl. His name was Brock Strom. He was. Uh, a hell of a football player. I, I got Merlin Olson in those days too. If you ever heard of him, uh-huh, he played yeah. at Utah State. Anyway, uh, uh, it was a tough day at the office. Uh-huh. That's the year they went to the Cotton Bowl, so they were nationally ranked. So they were good. And we were playing our home field, and I I came up the ramp, kind of dragging, to say the least. <laughs> and a cadet comes down the ramp, carrying a falcon, a prairie falcon. And they flew him at halftime. And he walked out there, and the announcer said, this is so-and-so, they're 
Academy and we're going to fly this Falcon and and stuff. And so he stoops the Falcon to the lure out in the middle of the football field. And I was just totally mesmerized by it. Mm-hmm. That was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And uh, so he brought the Falcon down. I thought, oh, shit, I better get in the locker room. So I come in there and Coach Levy's meet me. I don't know if you recognize the name, but he was a head coach for the Buffalo Bills uh-huh. for yeah. years. Marv so Levy. Marv was, yeah. And so Marv said, where in the hell have you been, Smiley? I said, Coach, I was just standing there thinking about how I can do better this second half. <laughs> and he said, he slaps me on the back, and he says, that way, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that encounter, um, I just got totally fascinated. Well, oh, so I went to the university and found this Emperor Frederick, the book. I kept checking it out. They were getting, thinking I was stealing it after a while. And uh, so that spring, I went down to Ravel Brothers Pet Store down on 2nd Street, and they had some baby Cooper's Hawks in there. So I bought me a Cooper's Hawk. Hmm. I think I paid $12, something $15 for out of a pet store. Of course, nothing's protected. Then. Yeah. And I got that there, and and uh, and feeding it, you know, what I knew, what to feed it, hamburger and stuff, you know, best I could find out, chicken hearts, whatever I could do. And uh, the bird baited. After a while, it got long enough tail, and it baited and dislocated both hips. It had rickets. Mm. You know, nobody knew any different. I thought, well, Jesus, this is kind of a bummer, <laughs> yeah. you know. And so I said, well, i got to get a bird that's a little more sturdy. And so I went out and got me a golden eagle. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Uh, they weren't protected. And I went down near Duran, New Mexico, down here, and and, uh, I found an eagle iry in an old ponderosa pine tree on the side of a a cliff, kind of. And I got up there and, uh, and scared the eagle, scared her out of the nest. She was ready to branch, but not very well. And so I chased her down about a mile or so and caught her and uh, trained her. And I was going to hunt coyotes with her and stuff. <laughs> I won't go into that step, but anyway, <laughs> coyotes are not that easy to find when you want one like that with, with a 12-pound female eagle on your fist. Uh-huh. But I had a lot of fun, and I was living in a, in a canyon uh, Three Gun Canyon off the Sandia Mountains, and I'd take the eagle and I'd put her out in the morning, and then I'd go to work and stuff, and come back and call her off the cliff, and she'd come down and land on my arm, and I'd put her in the muse for the night, and hacked her that way, and flew her around a lot. You know, it was a lot of fun, uh, but uh, I didn't do much with her. But <laughs> at least she didn't die of rickets and stuff. Somebody finally shot her in the canyon. Ah. Yeah. But, of course, you couldn't do anything. Nothing's protected yeah. in those days. So. Right. But that's how I got interested in falconry, and then I got a hold of Webby, and then I, I took up my eagle, another one, and Webby thought that was fantastic, and Morley Nelson and guys training eagles and all that. So uh, I got involved with that and got with Webby, and Webby called me and wanted me to, he's going to form this new club, North American Falconers Association, Want me to come on up, and I met with him and Pete Osborne and Heinrich uh, Heidelberg and George Flame and Bill Shinners and stuff. Jim Anderson, uh, some of them, Dennis Grisco, and they voted me Secretary of Treasurer for Secretary of Treasurer, and that's how we started the club. Hmm. And uh, then the second meeting we had was down at my place on the mountain, my I was working for the Forest Service as a ranger for the mountain at the time. And uh, <clears throat> we met there and we put the first hawk chalk together on my dining room table. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how it started, you know. Cool. And, uh, I, uh, I lasted two or three years and then Bill Shinners and I didn't like the politics that were going on. And people were selling birds overseas. Of course, they weren't protected. And we weren't too happy with that. With I won't go into names, but uh, anyway. Uh, so I just said I, I really appreciate the club, but I'd rather fly birds and do all this other correspondence and stuff. And yeah. so kind of Webby and I had a falling out, and uh, we got back together on a limited scale, 
and uh, stuff. I saw him a week before he died, actually, or two. Hmm. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, uh, that's how we got started. Cool. Well, and we I... had the first real meet at uh, in Reno at Bill Schinner's place in Reno, Nevada. Okay. Well, and so did any of your experience with the formation of, of NAFA um, lead to helping out with, you know, the state club here? or? Well, um, I started the state club here back in 1961, I think. Okay. Southwest, well, I can show you some of our old publications and stuff. Mm-hmm. That we did, and I kind of started a Southwest Falconry group because I wanted guests together so we could learn. Mm-hmm. And we had like Granger Hunt and stuff come over from Texas and different people, and we uh, kind of chugged along. And then it fell into disrepair. And then I think Jim Skidmore uh, started it up again. I would like to say something about New Mexico. <clears throat> We're kind of overlooked as a falconry center, mm-hmm. which is okay. But there's a tremendous amount of really nice things and nice people in New Mexico related to it. Uh, Dr. Cade used to come down here and hunt prairie chickens with us. Uh, we uh, uh, we got Jim Weaver, who has a big ranch here, one of the starting breeders of peregrine falcons and making hybrid falcons and all that. Jim lives here. He's a godfather to my daughter. And he has this ranch here. We had Frank Bond, who was the head of the International Falconers, as well as a lawyer and, and stuff for NAFA for many years. Uh, ran for governor. Friends, like, he had a lot of political influence with uh, throughout uh, the government and state government. He was a legislator, did lots of good stuff. We have, like, Brian Millsap, head of Migratory Birds at one time at Washington, D.C., Matt Mitchell, uh, um, Madison Haley, all these guys. And uh, some of them were real groundbreakers in what they did, like Cade and stuff. Myself getting the Peregrines for the Peregrine Fund and getting the first real work being done there. And uh, Steve Bodio, an outstanding author and writer of Falconry. So we... We had a core, and the interesting thing about it is we never had a formal organization. We didn't have, oh, this is a president, this is a vice president. And then we had different district reports and, and everything. We get together once a year, and sometimes we get together just out in the field if there's enough food. Uh, Corey and I used to have a little pigeon thing where we'd come in and just, you know, just fly some pigeons or something. Just, But we didn't have any of that club stuff. We still don't to this day. Now, when we had issues with the game department and stuff on certain things, we would get to get together. Kent Carney lived here for a number of years, went to every commission meeting we had, and he was right in the front row making sure Falconry was well represented and they didn't pull some background stuff with some preservation organization or something. And so it, the club really was uh, a very informal, but we didn't have any people that did illegal stuff. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any of this infighting, people turning each other in, people stealing each other's birds and all that crap that goes on. I, I think New Mexico has really been a, a really a special area when you take a look at all that. And we've, we've done fine. We don't have to have a newsletter <laughs> and all that <laughs> yeah. other stuff. We, we just, well, we're, there's probably maybe 50, give or take, active falconers in the state. But the ones we got, like Millsap, like Paul Domsky, these guys are great, great yeah. falconers. We had good ones like Jim Wilmarth and stuff, and when Tom Kay to come down, we'd go sage uh, prairie chicken hunting and stuff. Of course, those birds are gone now. They're endangered. They're still here, but we can't hawk them anymore. But yeah. We had some uh, some really outstanding people like Bodio and, and stuff that were part of New Mexico. Well, I mean, getting to to know a lot of you guys over the mm-hmm. last couple of days. And, you know, I mean, I've driven through New Mexico a few times. You know, I've been in and out of the state briefly. You know, I, so I've been able to get snapshots, but actually, you know, spending, you know, another couple of days here, which is still technically a snapshot, it's been nice seeing, you know, just a lot of the, uh, you know, <laughs> re- reinforcing some of that, that appeal. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really thought that it was a neat state. 
the couple times that I've been here before. And, um, you know, it, it has become apparent with the talks that I've done with you guys over the last couple of days that there is a lot of unique stuff here and, mm-hmm. um, a lot of different styles. I mean, it's, it's, it, it seems like it's, it's possible to do so many different methods of, of flight of flying here on a lot of different types of you know, mm-hmm. things. So, I mean, it's really hard to, to find places that, that have that much diversity, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's becoming more and more rare. Um, the more and more development and, and things like that happen in different states. So, I mean, kudos to you guys. I mean, it's, it's cool that you guys have been able to, yeah, you know, I think to have is. that. Yeah. And, and, and nobody, I mean, everybody pretty well gets along, you yeah. know, I, there's none of this, this stuff that was going on, but there are a lot of, like, uh, you had Greg here with his hawking jackrabbits with long wings, mm-hmm. you know, I hawk crows here, uh, one bird, Charlotte, I, I got her from the pea fund back at Cornell, a Peel's falcon, I hunted her for six years, took over, I don't know, four or five hundred crows, hawk crows every day almost with her, went back and she raised, uh, 27 of her own young and foster parented over 70 huh. and uh, just took her back and did a night hunt crows with sakers and stuff but uh, we did different things like that and everybody was kind of doing their own thing Mattis was down there in Roswell hunting the heck out of ducks I mean he mm-hmm. he took I gave him a Chisel Peregrine uh, Peelsburg I think uh, Butcher was his name I think he was catching over 100 ducks a season i mean i hate to use numbers no it's awesome though but and when i was down there i caught 60 or 70 ducks a year i'd just go down on weekends from work and uh and half of my let loose mm-hmm. you know it wasn't the killing of them and i i did make good duck fingers I, i'm a good cook with those but just the fact of watching a wild falconer that will come back to you not a pet mm-hmm. And and to watch it do it what it does best, and then to watch the quarry what it does. Yeah, you know. Well, and and it's and it's neater being able to see that a hundred times and even sixty yeah. times. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can say, I mean, anybody can say what they want about you know overall numbers and all that, but I mean, I would make the argument that more often than not, higher numbers, in a lot of ways, usually reflects someone who's flying the crap out of their bird too. Mm-hmm. And usually whenever you keep flying the crap out of your bird, you're going to have a much better bird, you know, and, yeah, definitely. and a much better hunter and you get out of what you put into it. So, I mean, well, that's true, but you got to have the quarry to start with too. That's, Most that's, people, yeah. they get uh, one of the faults I think foggers make is they get the bird they want, yeah. but they do, they should consider the bird that they can hawk with. Yeah. The bird that they need instead of one. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Cade said it best. He said Falkner is just an advanced form of bird watching. <laughs> in a way, I guess you yeah, can look at it I that way for sure. Is. You know, I uh, I have a lot of respect for the quarry. Yeah. And I, I don't always see that. I don't like to see these piles of jackrabbits stand in front of guys with three Harris hawks, I think, or five. Okay. I, I just don't think that's that's cricket, if you will. I, I uh, After I catch a, a game, I say, come well, brother, give us a gift of food and uh, life it's because we love you that we put you into our bodies isn't it great to be food for the sons of chiefs and that goes back i think it was the iroquois indians said that on their kills a lot and i picked that up and i've always used that as a way of respecting my core to you know to give its life so i can subsist you know not just throw it in the freezer or garbage can or whatever and uh it that's what's really neat yeah. Well, like I said, it's, um, it's been another insightful conversation and I'm glad to have finally, uh, met you in person oh. and, um, we'll come know. back when we're flying the Falcons. Well, I want to, yeah. I, I, I want to make it happen. And, um, if, uh, <laughs> travel and, and everything else permitting, like we discussed mm-hmm. earlier, then I would love to make that happen for, yeah. you know, for, a a short trip or whatever the case might be. Yeah, you know, tell sometimes. your wife you're going out to the sand pile. <laughs> you know, she's uh, she's so used to me being gone anymore uh-huh. that it's it, I could just be like, all right, see you later, and she'd be like, bye, and probably be happy about it too. So, but uh, but no, it was great talking to you, and I think this is a 
that's a good note to end on. I think I, we're right at about an hour here, and so okay, yeah. And you know, is there anything else that you want to add, real quick? Just in you know, no, I appreciate you guys getting this down. Yeah, that's why I gave all those letters to the archives and mm-hmm. stuff. So somewhere down in the future, because to be honest, I don't know how long we can continue with Falconry, just because of the lack of quarry and sure. stuff. It's you know, before it was getting the birds, and now it's finding a place to fly. And then if you find a place, it isn't overrun with other falconers and yeah. stuff. Well, and and um, it's and what, hunters and you know. Yeah. And no, I, I'm concerned I, about this internet stuff of showing all these kills by people that are against hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and they don't want you to kill them. I uh, I would I'll just one little story. Uh, my wife was working in the secretary's office in the car administration. We went to this uh, social event. Ansel Adams was there and a bunch of conservation people and all that. And Sherry was, just met me or came over here for the first time. And I hawked ducks. And she was telling these these other folks, these, these gals and stuff that were working in the secretary's office and in the White House and how cool it was to see the falcon chasing these ducks and stuff. And one of the gals just said that, well, that, 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 that's terrible. And Sherry said, well, no, it's it's just natural. It would be occurring, you know. She said, no. It went, and I said, well, what's wrong with that? And uh, she said, you enjoy it. So there's a whole group of people out there that just don't understand the ways of nature. And, uh, and because we enjoyed watching it, mm-hmm. it was... I've I've had that same conversation with people too, and I uh-huh. have to I have to go the extra step and specify it's not it's not the the act of the killing per se that that is what I enjoyed. It's the aspect of watching nature do its thing and having a front row seat mm-hmm. that I enjoyed. Not not you know getting off on the on something dying. You know, yeah, I mean exactly. It, and that usually once I I go that extra step. And ex- explaining that, then people go, "Oh, okay, you know that makes sense." Yeah, you know, yeah, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I I see what you're saying, and well, but sometimes the best flights are the ones that miss. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I agree, hundred percent. And, and uh, seeing that rabbit do a front flip over your bird, or or yeah. whatever the the case might be, has yeah. been some of the most fun things. Like you're just like, that was amazing. Like you almost want to see it again. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just like, you know, I'm yeah, I, I completely. And there's agree. nothing gets you closer to nature than. I remember specifically, even in in England when I went out to hawk, just the hawk and I, and sometimes the dog, walking in the evening, goshawk, and and everything's, your ears are tuned up 100% better than normal. Everything that goshawk is looking and listening, and a rabbit bolts, mm-hmm. you know, in the evening like that. That's the most in touch with nature I, you can ever be, I think. Mm-hmm. And whether you catch the rabbit or not, it doesn't make any difference. Just to have that experience of just by yourself, you know, yeah. out there with a the bird and, and hopefully with a nice dog and just letting it happen, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. you wouldn't do that otherwise. No, no, of course not. You know. No, no and and uh, and if you have somebody with you, just being able to look over and just be like, did you, did you see that flight? You know, I mean, yeah. that's just being able to also share that, you know, with people. I mean, honestly, that's that's a great part about mm-hmm. all this too is 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 getting some of those relationships also and being able to share some of that. Yeah, so. you know, it's interesting. You can you can know a falconer after one or two times better than any member of your family. <laughs> well, and and yeah. also and also, I don't know if you found this or not too, but usually after that six month hunting. Uh, time is up. Usually, you're so happy to be away from each other for, for an off season yeah, too. Usually, <laughs> and I'm, by, I'm by myself 90% of the time. Sure, I yeah. get together with Paul maybe every couple of weeks or something. But mm-hmm. I just like being out there. I mean, what you know? Yeah, it can't. It, something's going to happen no matter what. You're going to see eagles, or you're going to have wild falcons come in, or and the best flights you always have are when you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. And Usually, forget yeah. trying to show I got a great bird to a, to a bunch of people standing around. Yeah, this is not going to happen. That, that's <laughs> why I don't, fly, I don't fly birds at meets anymore for that reason. It's just yeah. too much of that that pressure, even mm-hmm. though you're relaxed with it. It's always, you know. And then if your bird's going to screw up, that's when it's going to screw up. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 
That's usually why I give the disclaimer anytime I've ever done that. It's just like, all right, it's probably going to be a train wreck, but here we go. <laughs> you guys can at least see a bird fly and probably go land in a tree or something or whatever the case is going to yeah, be. Yeah, well, no. mine is uh, <laughs> you want to... If you want to see God laugh, just show him, tell him your plans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, well like I said, it's, well, it's uh, been a pleasure to yeah. be on there with you. And, and it, I'm just not one of those guys that said the good old days, but there were some really good things going on at that time. And yeah. I don't lose them. That's why I say it's important for the falconers to look back and see those values and not dismiss them. Because mm -hmm. It's easy to dismiss them now with all the electronics and the, you can see your somebody catching their rabbit the minute they catch it. Yeah. You know. Well, and I've I've seen arguments too where it's like, well, I had this amazing transmitter on. Why didn't I get my bird back? It was the oh. transmitter's fault, you know. And it's just like, well, no, you you still got to get the bird back even after you track it down. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's all those kind of things that, you know, it's all a matter of perspective and and I agree. Well, it makes you know? it fun. I mean, I've been doing it for over sixty two years now. Mm -hmm. And haven't gotten bored with it. I've flown sailplanes. I did scuba dive, all these kinds of stuff. But I stayed with falconry. Mm -hmm. For one thing, the birds could fly better than I could in a plane. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think it's really, uh, it, it, you know, it just connects you with the outside world. And and name anything else where people train wild animals to hunt for them and with them. Yeah. I mean, I. The closest thing was cheetahs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a, a phenomenal thing. It's Peregrine, like Roger Troy Peterson said to me, he said, you know, it's, they're just like they're meant to be on your fist. Hmm. I caught birds on the Tortugas. I'd pick them up, and I could set them on my fist after we put the bands on them. They'd just sit there and look at me. Huh. Just, hey, take me home. Of course, we couldn't do it in those days. Yeah, yeah. Well, we better let Mr. Dumsky come in here and, Oh, he'll be fine. See, <laughs> see that, but uh, but yeah, no, it's great. Like I said, it's great meeting you in person and, and talking to you. And uh, you know, thank you again for for hosting and, oh, and for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad you could come to my man cave. <laughs> it's testosterone. Yeah, no, it's and you know we we got to have those. For, uh, estrogen forbid. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, and we'll talk again soon. Yep. <laughs>